0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Roland Clark and I'm here today talking to Dr. Alexandra Kiriak, who is a specialist in the history of 20th century applied arts and design in East Central Europe and Russia. Um, Dr. Kiriak is the author of Performing Modernism, a Jewish avant-garde in Bucharest, which was recently published by de Gruyter in open access form. So you can download it directly from the publisher's website for free and check it out yourself. Alexandra works on scenography and interior design, as well as performance, commerce and popular culture, with a focus on identity, gender and ethnic minorities. And she's just finished a postdoctoral fellowship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So welcome to the podcast, Alexandra.
1: Hi, thank you so much for um, having me, for inviting me to be here. I am a big fan of the podcast and I listen to it constantly throughout the first lockdown. Um, so it is um, entirely possible that I wrote the book just to be on here. So no pressure, Roland.
0: <laughs> awesome. Um, so the main character who appears on almost every page of this book is M.H. Maxi, and he's quite a famous member of the Romanian avant-garde uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Why should I have heard of him?
1: So I think that um, I will start by giving you the sort of straightforward answer, um, which is that I think um, Maxi spent a lot of his life at the very forefront um, of artistic developments throughout the turbulent history of the 20th century. So um, I think that when we look at his um, life and also his activities, we can see how they reflect the socio-political changes that are happening in Romania and also in the wider world at this time. Um, he was born um, just before the end of the 19th century. So um, as a young man already, you know, he um, gets to participate in the very first you know, event that happens in the, in the 20th century, which is the First World War. He is enrolled in the Romanian army and he starts um, sketching while he's there. Um, and this is um, the period when he really starts his career and also exhibits his um, work for the first time in um, 1918, I believe. Um, And then he does what most um, artists do in Romania at this time. He goes abroad um, in order to pursue his artistic studies. And he spent some time in Berlin in 1922 and 1923. And he um, is moving in all the the circles of the the avant-garde of that period. And he exhibits his work um, at a very well-known gallery called Der Sturm as well. Um, and then when he returns to Romania, once again, he's um, really in the sort of center of avant-garde activities that are happening um, in the country at this time. For example, in 1924, um, together with some colleagues, he organizes um, the International Contemporanul Exhibition, um, which is a very important event of this period because it involves avant-garde artists from across, um, from across Europe. Um, really, so it's it's sort of the first opportunity for Romanians to see all these new artistic developments in in Bucharest. Um, um, he is also involved in all the different periodicals and publications that are um, happening during this time. He edits the periodical Integral, for example, um, and because these avant-garde periodicals were um, extremely important as a networking for artists of that time it means that he is also connected to um, avant-garde artists all over the world they, they send these periodicals to each other and they write about each other's art and um, you know they comment on the cultural and political uh, sphere of the period um, and not only that but Besides doing, you know, the exhibitions and the periodicals and um, painting as well, doing fine arts, he also gets involved in uh, the sphere of design. So he begins to work in the theatre uh, and then he also begins to um, be interested in um, object design and interior design. Um, and we're going to um,
0: speak about that a bit later on. So Max is everywhere and <laughs> all over the place.
1: <laughs> He's everywhere. And he... Um, then you know that we get to the, the the really the most difficult period um, of his life and the life of other Jewish people in Romania, which is the um, early nineteen forties um, during the anti-Semitic fascist legislation. And at this point again, he is um, together with the community. He's organizing and he participates in the Jewish art school and the Jewish theater as well. So he we find him also there um, and. After the Second World War, he uh, then becomes the uh, director of the Romanian National Museum of Art, which is um, an institution that actually is created during that period in the, um, I mean, I think it opens in 1950. So he really does sort of all the things that he could possibly do during, that, during the period of his life.
0: Um, and one of the reasons why he's so famous is because he's usually seen as being the driving force behind the um, avant-garde through being the leader of the Academy of Decorative Arts, which was later known as Studio Maxi. But you don't think that's quite accurate, do you? Why not?
1: Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, when I started researching Maxi in 2015, I was very much... um, uh, interested in pursuing him um, as a Romanian artist and, you know, making him better known. Like you asked him, you asked me before, you know, why should you have heard of him? Uh, but then when I started to reflect on what I was finding and on my methodologies, um, I realized that there were a lot of issues with this and that in fact, um, you know, if I was going to write about him or write a book about him, the most interesting thing um, were really the collaborations and the networks that he participated in. Um, and so, um Part of that was also trying to get away from the national framework um, because I became very interested in all the different um, characters who were coming to the fore who had very transnational and fluid identities. Um, One of these was um, Andrei Vespremie. He um, was a man who was very little known before I started my research because he was um, supposed to be a, a Latvian artist in passing through Bucharest. And this is how he was always been, mostly been referred to in, in literature. Um, and so he, um, we knew that he was sort of a bit involved in the Academy of Decorative Arts, but it was not very clear how this happened. And a lot of people kind of ignored him. Um, The Academy of Decorative Arts, I should say, is important because it was the first School of Modern Applied Arts in Bucharest and it had um, multiple classes and workshops um, where you could learn various types of modern crafts and design um, and it acquired the reputation of being kind of like the Romanian Bauhaus. Um, And you can see how this um, kind of narrative is a very attractive one because it shows that Romania was in the, you know, if not in the centre of things, but at least um, kind of following along with the main trends of Western um, art and design. Um, and so for a long time, this was the narrative regarding the Academy of Decorative Arts, that it was sort of an um, outpost of the powerhouse in Bucharest and that it had been Maxi's contribution to bring these ideas um about modern art architecture and design to Bucharest because he had studied in Berlin during the 1920s. Um, And so I, like others before me, I'm ashamed to say that I was to begin with reluctant to follow the trail of Andrei Vestremi because I wasn't sure that he was very significant. Um, But my PhD supervisor, um, Jeremy Howard, um, is an amazing scholar and he works a lot on the Baltics. So he um, made me go to Latvia and uh, look at the archives um, there. And through the very kind help of the people at the Jewish Museum in Riga, I was able to go to the Latvian archives. um, And I found a whole heap of information about this man. Um, And it was really one of the kind of most important, I think, moments of my research because I realized that he was um, an extremely interesting person who led this amazing transnational life. Um, he so it's the reason why these documents were in the Latvian national archives is because he had applied to become uh, to work in Latvia and to become a Latvian citizen. So he was not a Latvian citizen to begin with. He was in fact a Romanian citizen. Surprise! Um, he um, was actually born in the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of the nineteenth century in Covasna in Transylvania, uh, and he became thereafter a Romanian citizen after the um, First World War and then a Latvian citizen. Um, and then in fact, very sadly he was actually murdered in the Holocaust um, uh, in the Kaiserwald concentration camp. Um, so um, I you know I was reading all these documents and trying to piece together his life and it really kind of occurred to me how um, important it is to open up to, to our research taking us in very different directions than we might expect. Um, So what happened next is that I I was looking through all this documentation and I found Vespremier's report card from the school that he went to. And it turned out he had also studied in Germany. He went to a place called the Breiman School, uh, which was a school of commercial design of that period. And it turned out that the classes that um, were being offered at the Academy of Decorative Arts when it opened in 1924 were exactly the classes that Vespermier had taken at the Raymond School and uh, so the disciplines that he we know he was very good at, he got really high marks in, uh, specifically metalwork, bookbinding, ivory work, and graphic design. These were some of the main ones. Um, And then I began to notice also the similarities in objects um, that were being produced at the Ryman and those that were being produced in Bucharest at the Academy of Decorative Arts. I started tracking down various objects and drawing comparisons. And it occurred to me that not only had Vespermier created the Academy of Decorative Arts in 1924, not only had he pioneered its design curriculum, but he had also instructed Maxi, in a number of disciplines, um, in particular metalwork and bookbinding. And that Maxi had later appropriated his visual vocabulary, vocabulary, so that we have a lot of items that can be indistinguishable, um, unless they are signed. Um, and um, I did find one item that was signed by Vespermia that had his maker's mark, um, which is a metal tray found in a, in a museum collection in Romania. Uh, which was a very moving moment for me to actually see his his signature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yes, I would say that um, you know it's now indisputable that he created the he created the academy and that he he created basically this flourishing institution that had up to eighteen types of different classes for children and for adults. Um, he made many links with the avant-garde in Romania. Um, he had many so, patrons and collectors who were purchasing items. Um, and then for reasons that are unknown, he moves to Riga uh, in 1927. And as I said, he um, you know he continues his life there, he gets married and he teaches a lot in Jewish um, schools during that period. A lot of his students do remember him afterwards. Um, and that is also how we find out that he dies uh, or he's murdered in the Kaiserwald concentration camp because one of his students tells us that in a memoir. Um, and so Maxi remains um at the helm of the academy of decorative arts he takes it over and he um registers his this business as his um in the summer of 1928.
0: um so is this why we've never heard of andre Vespremier because the the academy transfers into maxi's name or is there more to what you think
1: i think this is definitely one of the main reasons um maxi himself i think was very careful in creating his own the narrative of his own life. Um even as early as nineteen thirty, I think he already begins to write about how this institution was inspired to him by the Bauhaus, by the model of the Bauhaus that he had seen seen in Germany. And throughout the years, um, also during his period as museum director in the 1960s and 70s, he begins to contract, construct an avant-garde genealogy for himself by linking himself to emblematic institutions like the Bauhaus or to you know other famous artists of that period. And I think that one of the kind of reasons why um, this sort of narrative was created by Maxi and why it was also never really questioned by researchers so much um, is because the Bauhaus obviously has this amazing reputation as um, such a central institution in the history of modern applied art and design and architecture. But if we look at the Ryman, for example, if we make a comparison between the Reimann and the Bauhaus, the Ryman, which was largely forgotten um, also by researchers, um, was in fact uh, arguably a much more progressive institution at this time. When premier goes there in 1920, the Ryman had been functioning um, for about maybe 15 years or so. Um, the Bauhaus had only just opened in, in um, 1919. Um, And the Ryman was really at the forefront of change and innovation in the realm of commercial design. Um, It was actually creating various professions, like the profession of shop window um, designer was something that was created um, at the Ryman. And it also um, had a lot of female students. It really encouraged women to get jobs and to join the workforce. Um, and it focused really on pedagogy and on this sort of idea of creating pragmatic change through a collective um, endeavor. Um, and I think that, you know, this kind of activities perhaps are not as, you know, quote, unquote, sexy, like those of the Bauhaus, um, where we have these big ideas. But then when we actually look at what was happening in the institution, um, more and more, you know, we have research that's showing how, for example, the gender politics that were very um, uh, not very progressive um, and you know also the politics of some of the students were um, also leaning towards the right um, in the later years of the institution. And so I think that um, the kind of difference between um, the Ryman and the Bauhaus is the difference that we also see between Vespremier's work and Maxi's work. Because I think that for Vespremier, the important thing was... Um, to teach, to engender this very practical change. Um, He also employed a lot of women at the Academy of Decorative Arts who were teaching and leading workshops. Um, And he, you know, the institution was called the Academy of Decorative Arts. It never had his name, whereas after he left, Maxi, a couple of years later, opened his own business, which was called Studio Maxi. So for him, it was very much about, you know, this... um, making a, a name for himself, having a brand name almost. Um, and Vesprémier was not as adept at promoting himself because this is not what he was interested in. Um, yeah, so I would say I think this is these are some of the reasons why Vesprémier has been overlooked until now because it's really time to go beyond this kind of um, great man narrative or great institution narrative um, where we associate certain qualities with what we think is avant-garde. Um, when in fact perhaps we should be looking at a more incremental um, and practical ch- changes that were happening in a socio-political framework.
0: Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the really impressive things that you do in this book is you go through and you're able to prove that a lot of artworks that we thought were part of um, belong to Maxi, actually belong to Vers Premier, um, either because his signature's on them and been overlooked or because it fits his style. And you showed that Vespremia probably made a lot of the Academy's trademark pieces in metalwork, in book binding and graphic arts. Um, but who was it that pioneered interior decorating and the commercial section at the Academy?
1: Yeah, this was another uh, surprise that I had when I was doing the research because I realized that um, Maxi's wife, um, Anna Melania Brun Maxi, was much more involved than had been previously thought. Um, she is such an interesting person um, she was in fact older than Maxi when they got married by a couple of years and she was also 29 years old so practically a, you know an old mate for that time um, and it turned out that she also already had a career as a young woman and um, she worked as a representative um, for a firm called Maple & Co, a British firm um, that was one of the largest furniture manufacturers um, of that period, um, which was had business internationally. Um, and so in the early 1920s, um, Mela Maxi becomes involved with um, Maple & Co. And she is working, she's advising uh, people on their interiors um, and on what to purchase. She's very well informed as well. She's reading a lot of um, magazines about new advances in design and the arts. Um, and then eventually she, she meets Maxi and they get married in um, 1922. I think that um, you know the most surprising thing that I found, or maybe not—I don't know—it's that she supported him not only financially uh, but also professionally. Um, so because she had already been been working, um, she already, I think, had some capital. And also in Berlin, it seems that she was um, she worked throughout that time there. Um, But she also worked um, to connect Maxi to um, various important people. Um, And so she started also hosting a salon in their house um, when they returned to Bucharest. And this was a weekly salon that brought him into contact with a lot of important um, artists and intellectuals of that period. Um, And... Then, when I started reading memoirs of various um, avant-garde artists, I could find these sort of throwaway comments about her contribution and how you know they remembered um, going to these salons and how she was um, instigating these very intellectual and very interesting discussions um, and basically you know almost like curating these events to make them as um, interesting and as modern as possible. Um, and it was also. Uh, mela Maxi's idea to contact André Vespremier, who, um, as I said, had opened the Academy of Decorative Arts in 1924. Um, and in 1926, um, she contacts him with the idea of creating uh, a commercial section for the Academy. That is to say, a space where the objects that were being produced there could be sold to the wider public. Um, and... I uh, was able to track down a handwritten document, um, which is two pages long, and which is kind of um, a contract between... uh, Vespamia, uh, Mela Maxi, and uh, another patron of the academy who was um, also bringing some um, f- a financial backup. Um, and so she is named basically in this contract as a person who was going to be responsible for this commercial section. Um, she was going to manage it and administer it. Um, she brings capital. We know from the document that she brings a hundred thousand Romanian lay to the to this business. And she is also responsible for selecting the merchandise that's going to be on display for sale. So essentially, she is the business manager of this venture, um, and there is no, you know, at this point in within all the documentation, there is absolutely no no mention of her husband. Um, so we don't really know, you know, what his um, contribution was specifically. Um, she creates this section, and she does some very interesting things with it. Um, we have images um, that appear in the press that are being used for promotion of the space. And we can see from these images that what she did was to create basically complete environments or ensembles that they are called uh, in order to promote the modern interior. Um, it's a marketing technique that was um, at the time being developed and that you can still find today, um, you know, I mean, if you go to IKEA, you will see this exactly the same concept that they are picking out various items from the, um, the their shop and they are placing them, they are making whole rooms with them, they are making whole environments. And the reason why this technique was so popular is because it could entice customers uh, with a vision of what their own homes could aspire to. So they could see how the new, this new modern interior could be attractive, could be harmonious. They could see how all the all the different objects went together. And by doing this, she creates this emblematic image of the academy. We have these um, these images that appear in the press and on the cover of the avant-garde magazine Integral as well, which you know. Are very likely a result of her um, pioneering this type of merchandising, but she ultimately gets no recognition for it. Um, and it's interesting that even in the memoirs of her daughter Liana, so the daughter of uh, Mela and Mh Maxi, who's Liana Maxi, who writes a, a book in the nineteen eighties about her family, um, Liana says that you know her mother after her marriage. Um, she was not longer interested in shining through her verb and conversation or in being consulted as a specialist by those who frequented art exhibitions and auctions. Um, end of quote. Um, this is because she wanted to take a step back so that you know she can put forward um, MH Maxi and that he can take credit um, for kind of doing all this work that she's in fact kind of supporting him quite seriously um, financially and also, like I said, um, professionally.
0: This is, um, this is fascinating, both at how influential and productive she is, but also the, the silences. Um, you said there's quite a few women working at the Academy. Was there much hostility towards female interior design?
1: Um, yeah, so there are quite a few women who were teaching there. And unfortunately, I have not been able um, at the moment to find out exactly who they were. So that's a, a future project um, that I would like to continue because I think it's it's so interesting to see how that was functioning in Bucharest. Uh, what we know is more about um, the wider context of European arts and architecture. And like you say, um, traditionally, the domestic space was seen as something that belonged to women, but in this sort of amateur capacity. And as women began to enter the workforce, this created unease amongst those who were benefiting from the status quo, Uh, you know, from the architects and designers who were were male and who um, had been working until then. Um, And we see this, you know, like I said, with the Ryman, which is supporting its female students and sending them out into the workforce, and it pays for that because eventually it becomes seen as being inferior to the Bauhaus. Um, And some of the female students who went to the Ryman actually do discussed us in there. Um, they remember how, you know, it was much more prestigious eventually to be, to go to the Bauhaus, uh, because there were not as many women students. And um, I relied a lot on the excellent work that's been done by people like Penny Spark and Tag Brunberg, um who have discussed the way in which women who were entering the field of design um, were often seen as being, uh, you know, amateurs, needing guidance from male experts. And we can see how this also happened with Mela Maxi, because although she's the one who, you know, did the work, uh, what eventually happens was that her husband actually theorized various aspects of modern design in Romania. He began to write about this. And so he began to be seen as an authority in this field because of that. Um, And so this image of expertise that he had, um, you know, trumped her actual um, expertise of a much more practical nature, if I can, if I can put it that way. And we have people like um, the avant-garde writer and journalist Felix Aderka, who says that Maxi's activities are intellectualizing the interior um, and they are a school for public taste. So it's, a very interesting choice of words I think that he's using there and that's because the issue of taste was really the battleground here um women were thought to be interested more in superficial things in fashion in decoration and ornament they are connected a lot to ornamentation and decoration because um of the fact that they you know they put on makeup for example so it's seen as something that women do that's um specific to them, which is um, the sort of um, almost like a, a devious kind of quality Performative uh, quality, whereas the um, you know if we think about the the male body or the masculine suit, which is very kind of standardised and anonymous, um, especially during this, this period, uh, you know begins to be sort of the suit that we also know today. And this was thought to be more like a very simple, honest aesthetic that um, could reflect true quote unquote modernism. We see this also in the writings of um, designers and architects of that period, specifically Lucubusier. Um, who's, you know, the best known. And so I think that in my work, I also wanted to tackle this a little bit and to show that modernism can have many different facets and can incorporate all sorts of practices. And it's much more interesting to see what lies beyond this heroic male genius narrative that um, gets put forward a lot in, in art history and, in, um, you know, when we think about modernism as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, What about the fact that all of these artists you talk about were Jewish? Was being Jewish a good thing or uh, did it create difficulties if you're an artist in 1920s Romania?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. So um, evidently at this time antisemitism was very widespread in, in Romania and Because I was reading a lot of press from that period, Um, when I was doing my research, I was really struck by kind of the daily level of aggression that Jews would encounter, Um, you know, not just verbally, but obviously there were reports of, you know, physical violence as well, but even just um, kind of the general attitude towards them that you can see um, in, in the press at that time. And there's been a lot of excellent topic, uh, excellent work on this topic recently by many historians, including yourself. And so I um, didn't kind of press too much on this point. I mean, I I discussed a lot of this literature in the introduction, but what I wanted to do was to focus on the work that Jewish artists were doing, uh, because, you know, I realized that there was actually very little that had been done on that and I wanted to see you know how they could flourish and what sort of networks they were tapping into who are the patrons who are interested in buying um these kind of items um and really what was happening you know what their activities were during that period and um I was very I spent a lot of time thinking about how to name the book as well um, Because, you know, often books like these would tend to have something like the Romanian avant-garde in the title. Um, And I decided in the end that I didn't want to call it that. So I called it a Jewish avant-garde in the end. And the reason for <laughs> that was because, well, first of all, I think even those artists who were, you know, born in Romania had such a fraught relationship to, you know, this idea of citizenship because, of course, they were not allowed to be Romanian citizens um, for a long time. And in Max's case, I think he had to apply even twice to become, to be naturalized. Um, you know, so, so they were, you know, losing and gaining and then losing this right and then gaining and then losing it again. And then, of course, we have uh, somebody like Vespremier, who I really didn't want to impose an identity on him because we don't really know how he felt about it, how how he viewed himself. Uh, Did he view himself as Jewish, as Hungarian, as Romanian, as Latvian, or all of those together? We don't really know. But what I think is interesting is that looking at what's happening at the Academy of Decorative Arts is that... um, it produces a design vocabulary that is very different from the national style, and so the national style uh, or the neo-Romanian style was a style that was supposed to be somehow defining the um, identity of Greater Romania. Um, you know, the expanded the, the Romania with all these new territories after the First World War, and the. Um, kind of guide, guiding light behind it was the idea that real romanianness uh in very large quotes <laughs> it was only found in the village and in the folk art of the peasant and what we see is that um, the Academy of Decorative Arts, for example, focuses more on an urban and much more contemporary, much more modern vocabulary. And even if they don't, you know, specifically make a political statement in any of the documentation that I have found, just looking at the things that they are producing, um, you know, makes you realize that they are doing something quite drastically different. And we have, um, you know, Maxi's. Um, kind of comments on that um, because he writes about um, this very important exhibition, international exhibition that takes place in Paris in 1925, uh, the International Exhibition of Modern um, Decorative and Industrial Arts, uh, where you know a lot of countries participate. It's the exhibition that uh, eventually gives the name to the Art Deco um, kind of aesthetic current in art. And Romania does not participate in this exhibition. And um, in Maxi's kind of view, the reason for that is because the government or the authorities did not consider that Romania had any urban sort of design or modern design to show. That they thought that the only real applied art comes from the folk art of the peasant. And in fact, you know, it, he he's probably right because instead of participating in the exhibition um, where you know which congregates all the other countries, Romania decides to make its own individual exhibition. Um, in another venue in Paris. And what does it show there? It shows fall carpet, of course, um, religious art, and also a lot of 19th century painting. Um, so there is definitely something to be said for um, the fact that there was you know, a reluctance to embrace the urban and the modern because of a fear of... Um, the other you know the the jews or other nationalities the fear of um straying away from whatever they thought this sort of romanianness had to be um, and this was really reflected in the in the arts and um yeah so i think that you know the the academy of decorative arts does become this multi-ethnic space where you see that a lot of people who work there Um, where, you know, not necessarily just, um, Jewish, but also a lot of other ethnic minorities who were, um, um, active in, in Romania at this time. So, you know, everybody's welcome who perhaps feels that they cannot flourish in other spaces. And they also have a lot of clients who are, um, Jewish, who are, um, specifically, um, wealthy, um, middle-class Jews who work, for example, in industry or commerce, um, and who come there to pick up items that, you know, they can have in their home. They can also um, order um, um, ceremonial objects. So we know they were making, for example, menorahs at the Academy of Decorative Arts. so yeah, so I think that that's that was one thing that you know I tried to focus on, and I I found it very important to say that, um, in the book. And I guess you know reflecting on that, um, we still have to remember how all of these artists were affected by anti-Semitism all the time. And when I found Maxie's um, Maxie registering his business in the Chamber of Commerce Bulletin in 1927, where he takes over the Academy of Decorative Arts, he. Um, is written down. His name is written down, and then it says that he's a uh, naturalized Romanian citizen. It says "nacionalitate romana dobundita." So he he's branded almost. You know, like he cannot escape. It doesn't matter that he was born there or that he was naturalized. Whatever he does um, in the documentation, this will always be there.
0: Um, yeah, it's doesn't really matter where you're born. You're still marked as different and other. Um, Jews play a really important role in the second half, whole second half of the book. But before we get there, um, there's this intermission, which I thought was quite a clever idea to put an intermission in the centre of a book um, because it gave me a chance to get up and get a drink and (laughs) um, chat to people. Um, And it focuses on theatre sets that Maxi designed for Jan um, Minulescu's play The Sentimental Mannequin in 1926. So, given that Maxi and his wife were trying to sell their interior designs to a wider public, as you talked about them setting up rooms to to show people what it, what could be done, um, because the wider public wasn't necessarily au fait with modernism, what did you find interesting about these theatre sets from from the Sentimental Mannequin?
1: So what I, I try to do with the intermission is to bring together the two parts of the book, which um, were obviously the first part, as we said, we focused on the on design for the interior and the Academy of Decorative Arts. And then the second part of the book focuses on theatre and stage design. And for me, they, were, they are part of the same kind of sphere of activity. There are many connections. And I wanted to somehow show that and to think through how this interdisciplinarity functioned. And what I found was that, um, at the time of the very first um, Academy of Decorative Arts exhibition in the space created by um, Mela Maxi in 1926, um, we also have the premiere of display, the Sentimental Mannequin, which Maxi designs. Um, So they are really maybe a couple of weeks apart um, in the autumn of 1926 this play is a very interesting one it was written actually that same year in 1926 so it's a very it's a very new um, contemporary text of uh, by joan minulescu who is a great supporter of the academy and he's also um, a minister for the arts so they do have some support um, you know amongst the the intellectual elite and the politicians um, and um Minulescu's play um, does something that, you know, a lot of uh, drama does at this time, which is to deconstruct artistic conventions. So the idea is that as a spectator, you become aware of the artifice and he, Minulescu specifies that the stage design needs to look like a shop windows and that the characters of the play are the mannequins. That's why it's called the sentimental mannequin. And... Something like this you know, could very easily become sort of a gimmick, but uh, for Maxi, the shop window framing is much more important than that. It becomes an integral part of the design. And he constructs this um, stage set to look like a, a shop window, but he does it um, using very modern... Um, a very modern look for it. So he he makes it look like some of these shop fronts that you could see in 1925 in Paris at this international exhibition. For example, the shop sign is uses this um, kind of sans serif, um, very simple kind of lettering. He um, adds some um, elements that are visually reminiscent of cubism. For example, to the door frame or the um, the framing of the shop and the most interesting thing that he does is that he populates this um, make-believe shop windows with the kinds of objects that you could buy at the academy of decorative arts um now i have not been able to find any photographs of this which is my my greatest regret and also hope that it will happen because i would love to see if they were the actual objects or how he dealt with this um so I have his, you know, his designs where he is, he's creating the space. Um, and it's very interesting to me how he essentially does product placement to what we today know as product placement, um, because the play becomes also a venue for advertising his other venture, the Academy of Decorative Arts. Um, and he... Um, also, is um, interestingly becomes a um, uh, contributor to not just to art magazines, but to trade magazines about merchandising and display. It's something that um, again was a surprise when I was um, researching him, because you know most researchers just look at these uh, very prominent cultural publications or the avant-garde publications. Um, But when I started looking at these trade publications that were specifically about, you know, the creation of marketing as a profession in Romania in the 1920s, I found articles that were written by Maxi. He is very interested in the use of shop windows and the use of the urban landscape as a kind of educational tool. Um, And this is something that he probably picks up from um, his time in Germany or from his interest in, in what's happening in German um, art and design at this time. Um, and interestingly, it's something that the Reimann also pioneers. So the Reimann was, um, I think, one of the very first institutions to have uh, a department of shop window design even before the First World War. Um, and this was created um, together with a kind of conglomerate of German architects and designers who also thought that by making the streets um beautiful and tidy that you could also inspire people to behave like that you know in their in their um interiors but also um to become better people almost so it had also this this moralizing kind of quality uh, the idea that you could use the public space in this way um and so i do think that when we see we look at these activities that um were happening at the Academy of Decorative Arts in 1926 with the showroom, with Madame Maxi's showroom and with Maxi's um, um, putting this on on stage and also critiquing um, the shop windows of Bucharest, for example, um, we can see how they are actually trying to connect with the audiences, with the Romanian audiences, to get urban dwellers um, to become interested in these new and modern aesthetics, um, to get rid of the dark and cluttered and old-fashioned interiors that perhaps they were having in their time to buy into a new look um, that they could get at the Academy of Decorative Arts. Um, Yes, I I think it's interesting that also you know, at the very end of the 1920s, Maxi does eventually open his own shop, like I said, Studio Maxi, and he gets to create the shop front from the sentimental mannequin in, in real life. Um, he gets to see his dream um, actually happen, and, and it creates a big um, a big stare actually when it opens because, you know, this was still something very unusual um, on the streets of Bucharest to have this beautiful big window pane of glass with these beautiful, um, you know, objects arranged in a simple way and a very um, modern metal um, shop front lettering instead of a painted shop sign, for example. Um, and so, yes, I do think that him and, of course, mela Maxi and Dreves Premier are at the forefront of this movement that then becomes widespread in 1930s in Bucharest, um, but they are there first, you know, from the mid 1920s.
0: Um, and in your book, you prove all of your arguments through some really close analysis of artworks, um, and by drawing from archives. I lost count of the number of archives you worked in. Um, what was the most interesting or challenging archival collection that you um, explored?
1: Um, yeah, there were so many surprises and it was actually a challenging research because of all the um, geographical terrain that I ended up having to cover. Um, also language, I had to have, um, you know, documents translated from Latvian, for example. Um, and also, you know, a lot of this heritage is so neglected in Romania that um, I also had to persuade private collectors to talk to me. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was very eventful. Um, and I would say perhaps the, one of the more interesting um, archives that I, I um, was able to look at was actually the one that um, Maxi constructed himself or the one that he could control, which is the archive of the National Romanian Art Museum. Because as a director, um, being there for a 20-year period, he was able to craft... Uh, the narrative about his own life Um, and I found for example that um, when I was looking at all the stage designs that he did that we're going to talk about in a minute um, all of them were looking very similar so a whole um, whole group of them were evidently done kind of at the same time um, and they were very clearly annotated and it looked like they were not really made to be used as working stage designs but more for sort of exhibition purposes let's say and they looked also sort of a bit new and so it occurred to me that probably what had happened was that in 1965 when he had a major retrospective a few years before his death I think it was actually his 70th birthday um, he had a major retrospective in Bucharest and it is entirely possible that there were many works that he either recreated or repainted um the the museum has also discovered that he repainted for example one of his well-known works in later years um and so it really you know working through the documents and through the objects and the artworks that I was looking at in the in the museum stores it really brought to me the fact that um the you know this unreliability of the archive almost so you know we have we even if we look at these documents and these artworks, we have to kind of make sure that uh, we think about the context in which they were created.
0: Um, and as you say in the book, just because the archivist has labelled it a certain way doesn't mean that that's actually what you're looking at.
1: Yes, absolutely, exactly, and yeah, that was very important.
0: Um, so this intermission, it works as a nice segue between Maxi's work at the Academy, which you show we know less about than we thought we did, um, and he's working with the Vilnius Yiddish theatre troupe, uh, which we didn't think we knew very much about at all, but now we do. Um, so the first Yiddish theatre production that he worked on was the play Shab in Bucharest in 1926. What was Max's contribution to this play?
1: So um, yes, I think that the um, the Vilna Troupe is such an interesting topic. It's really an overlooked force of nature in the early 20th century theatrical work, and um, there is a scholar in the US called Deborah Kaplan who has written actually an account of just the Vilna Troupe, um, and she very kindly shared her manuscript with me actually um, before she published it while I was doing my research. So I, I became aware of the fact that you know this was is a very big deal that they were based in Romania for several years. Um, the Vilna Troop was created in Vilnius in 1915, but they didn't really stay there for very long. So they, the name comes from there, but they were never really affiliated with, um, you know, they were not in any way sort of a national troop um, or, you know, located in the city for very long. They were an itinerant nomadic troop. Um, And I think this is actually what made them so important and influential because they um, had a global impact through the fact that they travelled, they toured widely. They went really everywhere in in Europe and in the Americas. Um, And they had many admirers, um, including like Sarah Bernhardt, Max Reinhardt. I think in in Britain they were seen by Augustus John and Walter Sickert, the the artists um, quite, you know, well-known artist who commented on how amazing it was to see the, these productions. And um, in a Franco-Romanian context, um, Eugene Ionescu, the playwright, the modernist playwright, was also a fan. Um, so when they come to Romania in 1923, um, they do, in fact, have a great success. Um, they are, um, we have, you know, a record number of performances and we have huge numbers of um, audiences that includes many intellectuals, artists, politicians, and even it seems that uh, members of the royal family also came to see the plays. And it's interesting that the newspapers say that these plays are worthy of being seen even by those who do not understand the language, uh, because they were being performed in Yiddish. Um, Yes, so... It's a, a moment where, you know, despite the very, um, the great deal of anti-Semitism that we have um, in the intellectual, Romanian intellectual and political world at this point, somehow the Vilna Troupe convinces people to go and see its place, even when, you know, it, they don't understand what's going on um, on stage in terms of the language, but they can see or they, they can understand just by sort of seeing these productions.
0: And enjoy them. And enjoy them,
1: yes, yeah. So that they... They are greatly acclaimed. Um, and so they decide to actually remain here uh, for, for a number of years. They collaborate with local artists, and Maxi is one of them. And I think this is a time when um, there is a great deal of change in the realm of theatre and of stage design. We go from what we had in the 19th century, which were these painted decors, um, that were tended to be interchangeable between different places. So you would have, I don't know, like a landscape or a mountaintop or something. And it could be used for a number of different productions. And we go to something that's very different. And Maxi actually says that uh, the set should not be a scaled up version of a painting. Um, and that the optical illusion of perspective should be removed. So he's not interested in doing a realistic kind of stage set. The play that he collaborates in uh, for the first the first time with the Vilna troupe is very interesting because it's uh, not at all um, modern or contemporary. It's a, it's a play about a 17th century figure who um, was thought to be ushering in a new uh, messianic era until he abjured his faith, uh, his Jewish faith, in front of the Ottoman sultan, thus proving to be a false messiah. So the, the play is called V that's his name, or the false messiah. Um, and it's obviously a topic of significance and tradition for the Jewish community, but um, perhaps not very modern and also not particularly well known to other people who might be going to see the play. And so the approach that is employed to bring the story to the stage becomes extremely experimental. We have these very stylized geometric um, decors that are almost entirely abstract Um, and a lot of uh, borrowing from the aesthetic vocabulary of of cubism, so that even when we have a couple of painted backgrounds, um, they are not at all illusionistic, but they are these geometric compositions. um, They can also be very colourful in the second act, for example. And it really um, matches the the theatrical spirit of the production, which is not at all naturalistic. Um, We also have... um, these um, uh, platforms um, on stage that are used to create uh, dynamism for the performance and also to create dramatic collective formations. So the actors often come together um, in, different, in different formations. Um, this is something that probably comes from um, developments in Soviet theatre at this time, which is all about you know, how you move the body and how the body can become part of the collective. Um, But Maxi also considers practicalities uh, because he has these very clever multifunctioning devices on stage, even when they they don't have a lot of financial means, so they have to make it all work. So, for example, in Act 2, we have this sort of pyramid shape um, that's being used for various points of the action, including to be the throne of the Ottoman Sultan at one point. Um, and then when we get to Act Three, uh, we can see that it's been turned around, and it actually has a has a set of steps on the other side, which are also very important for the performance. So the innovations are not only pictorial um, or visual, but they also consider the way in which um, the stage space the stage space functions at this point. And I just want to kind of end by saying that one of the reasons why I know so much about this production is because I managed to find um, not only the designs, but also a set of photographs from the premiere. Um, and uh, the reason why I found them is because again I followed a transnational trajectory, and namely that of Joseph Boloff, who is the main actor in this production. He's also its director. And um, he eventually decides to leave Romania and to travel to the United States in 1927. Um, And he puts on this same production of Sharp V with designs by Maxi in Chicago. Um, And all of this information comes to be in his archive, which is at the Harvard University Library Judaica Division because Bilov became a very well-known actor in the US and he was on Broadway and so on. Um, And he left his entire archive to the Harvard library. Um, And yes, I just, you know, it was really great to see that once again, because I was not trying to write the history of quote unquote Romanian theatre, I was able to get so much further um, and, it also shows how these productions were really not static at all, either intellectually or geographically.
0: Mm. Um, and one thing that Maxi does is he brings constructivism into the designs of the mise en scenes for plays like Man, Beast and Virtue, which comes out in 1926 as well. Um, how is he playing with space in these designs?
1: So this is another collaboration with the Vilna Troupe. It's a play by Luigi Pirandello, um, who's a very uh, important modernist playwright. Um, So again, it's sort of a new type of drama, and this is the point where Maxi's experimentation really reaches its most extreme. I think so. He doesn't. He uses no more painted backdrops, and instead, what we have are completely um, kind of transparent structures uh, made out of wooden beams that basically sketch out. The environments on stage, so we get only these wooden outlines um, of you know doors, windows, rooms, whatever um, he's trying to to do. Um, and we this means that you know the walls disappear as if the characters are living in a completely see through structure, uh, which I think you know takes us back to his interest in maybe shop windows, um, and also in in modern technologies because. Um, in one of the reviews um, of the play in the avant-garde magazine, Integral, um, the, te- the technology of x-rays is referenced. Um, so it, it, the review talks about Maxi's x-ray vision. We can see through walls, and not only that, but we can see into the sort of psyche of these characters almost. This is how we can now understand the play on a much um, deeper level. Um, so I think this it's it's very interesting how how he uses this idea of, of transparency. And because the play also includes some sort of quite sketchy characters morally, um, he uses also surfaces that are kind of sloping and unstable. So when you're looking at the at the stage, you're not quite it seems like sort of moving around. Um, mm. And um, yeah, this is really the production that uh, brings us to to the end of 1926, which was really such a, an important year for him um, in fostering developments both on the stage and in in um, the realm of of design as well of um, interior design and marketing.
0: Whenever people write about Yiddish theater in Bucharest, they always talk about the Vilna Troupe. But you point out in the book that there was other Yiddish theatre troops performing in Bucharest as well, uh, including the troupe of Dida Solomon Kalimaki and Jakob Sternberg's group. Were they just imitating what the Vilna troupe had done, or were they adding something new to the Bucharest scene?
1: I think that both of these artists brought some new and exciting developments after the departure of the Vilna troupe in 1927, uh, with Dida Solomon, we have another neglected female figure of the avant-garde who was uh, really sidelined, um, not only due to her gender, but also potentially due to her, her Jewishness. So she became very famous by playing Miss Julie at the National Theater in Bucharest, uh, but then she was not really offered any other good roles. So um, some of her avant-garde colleagues commented the fact that anti-Semitism you know, played a, a part in this. So she decided to put together her own troupe. And it's very interesting that she selected all avant-garde artists who are all Jewish. Um, We have Maxi, we have also, um, you know, Marce, Elianku, Sandu, Eliad and Jakob Sternberg, all very well-known avant-garde artists of this period. Um, But the productions um, were going to be in Romanian and she also names the theatre the Caragiale Theatre, which is uh, the name of Romania is, no one of, best-known playwright of the 19th century um so i think she's really trying to make a point and i and i like that but um i it's it's was very hard to find information about this um particular project again i think that's you know something to do with her her being female her not being really recognized very much as a figure of the avant-garde so normally she's just discussed as a as an actor um somebody who did this you know the drama like uh miss julie which perhaps is not, uh, I mean, it was avant-garde, but not um, by the 1920s. Uh, perhaps we're, we're expecting a kind of different um, level of experimentation. Um, and in fact, this experimentation does happen at the Caragiale Theatre. We have continued experiments with space and with technological influences. Uh, we have, for example, modular sets that change around during productions. Um we have uh, moments when the actors are asked to pause um, as if their actions were being captured by a camera lens. Again, something I think that's you know very interesting, playing with um, all of these new technologies on stage. Um, and so because they are really pushing boundaries, I think maybe further than the Vilna troupe, um, they are criticized heavily in the press and they um, go bust uh, about a couple of months after they open. So the, this only lasts for for maybe two or three months which is you know really um a sign of um how challenging it was to make this kind of theater in bucharest at this time um and yes and then you asked me about jakob stanberg as well so he He's somebody who has a bit more success uh, because he is so determined. So he is a Bessarabian um, theatre producer and director. He comes to Romania even before the First World War. And his um, kind of dream is always to create a a more permanent um, space or venue for Jewish theatre. And he's involved with the Vilna Troupe as well. But then after they leave, in 1930, he creates his own Yiddish language theatre troupe. He puts on two productions that become very influential, uh, both by um, very well-known um, uh, Jewish writers, um, Ayel Peretz and Shalom Aleyhem. Um The plays are A Night in the Old Marketplace and The Bewitched Tailor. And he is really such a visionary director. He combines a lot of elements together to create complex and complete spectacles. So he has specially commissioned music, for example. He, um, you know, um, matches that to the kind of the conception of the stage design. He has choreography and movement um, occurring throughout um, throughout the productions. He also uses lighting, stage lighting, very well. And his productions are reportedly absolutely mesmerizing to look at. We have some photographs, but we also have a lot of reviews um, that people have written about how incredible it was to attend these performances that are so arresting and harmonious. Um, And what I think is, is interesting that he also plays around with what he's doing, he makes a lot of references to the cinema and the cabaret, for example, um and we have um you know the bewitched tailor which is kind of um it's sort of a fable-like tale of the jewish Tetal, um which he accompanies with specially composed klezmer music but then it also has this cubist like set by maxi um and a couple of compares or mcs that sternberg adds to the production um who are these sort of two men in, in bowler hats who are commenting on what's going on if you've seen the movie cabaret for example you know it's something like that this fairly sort of berlin 1920s um so he brings this arm also together with everything else which results into this wild riotous performance by all accounts um so yeah, so I think that th- these performances were really um, admired a lot by intellectuals of that era, and they get mentioned throughout the decades long afterwards. Um, you know, even when in the nineteen kind of sixties and seventies, uh, people always um, mention how groundbreaking these two performances that Sternberg created were.
0: Um, so Sternberg's work—it's—it's it's funny, it's exciting, it's intellectual. Um, is it also political?
1: Yes, I would say that his motives were always political because he dreamt of this permanent organisation for Jewish theatre in Romania, um, you know, from the very uh, beginning that when he arrived in the early um, kind of decades of the 20th century, this was always his dream. And he tried, like I said, with the um, this Yiddish language theater troupe that he created in 1930, the Bucharest um, Yiddish Theater Studio. But he could not find enough financial support. Um, he even appealed to the authorities, to the Ministry of the Arts, um, to be eligible for some funding. And they told him that he couldn't because he was not, you know, Jewish theater was not one of the um, state state theaters. So... And um, when he did these uh, productions of the, the Witch, Taylor, and A Night in the Old Marketplace, um, many reviewers and audiences were very much moved by a fantastical depiction of this fading Jewish world um, of the, the shtetl, for example. And I think he was very prescient in that, as um, this happened in 1930, and you know, we know that right-wing politics was already on the rise. He himself was very aware aware of this um, situation. And in 1933, he put on um, a theatrical review in Bucharest. Um, A review is, again, it's like a cabaret-like show with lots of different uh, numbers. And he put this on, uh, not just for entertainment, but he also had a very explicit political agenda. Um, there is a, a musical number in there, which is called Beautiful Adolf, um, which is a comment on Hitler's recent appointment as chancellor. Um, and in this number, he is vanquished by the figure of Charlie Chaplin, um, which you know, mm-hmm. sort of says that um, it's really the hope that you know, that the underdog would eventually prevail, which we know that did not happen, unfortunately. <laughs> And we also have musical numbers that are commenting on the economic crisis or you know, people living in poverty on the streets of Bucharest and so on. Um, and in, I end my book in 1934 with Sternberg's productions. Um, and I think that as a decade wore on, there really was no choice but for art and culture to become political. Um, I mentioned earlier how in the early 1940s, we have the anti-Semitic legislation um, during the fascist regime. Um, that removes Jews from public life, which means that Jewish staff and performers um, cannot be active in the Romanian theatre anymore or in art schools. But they were eventually permitted to create their own organisation. Um, and this is a point where, as I said, Maxi was able to join his peers in setting up both a Jewish art school and a Jewish theatre in Bucharest. Um, and... Then after during the communist period, Maxi was also able to, you know, further shape the narrative by being a director of the Muse- National Museum of Art. And he also continued to design for the state Jewish theater. I mean, I would say that, you know, the sort of silver lining in, in all this is that Sternberg's dream did actually come true because the Permanent Home for Jewish Theatre in Romania was created um, also during the communist period, the State Jewish Theatre, and it's still in the same location and it it still functions. So, uh, you know, maybe I can convince them to uh, put on some of the plays that I talked about in the book.
0: (laughs) That would be wonderful. I'd love to see them after reading about them. Um, That's about all we have time for today. But thank you so much for talking us through this um, amazing subject and just a reminder to our listeners that you can download a copy of the book for free uh, from de Goita's website and read it yourself now that Alexander has wedded our interest somewhat.
1: Thank you so much. That was uh, really a blast to be here and thank you for having me.